Chapter Three of Henry D. Thoreau. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Henry D. Thoreau by Benjamin Franklin Sanborn. Chapter Three: Concord and Its Famous People. The Thoreau family was but newly planted in Concord, to which it was alien both by the father's and the mother's side. But this wise town adopts readily the children of other communities that claim its privileges, and through Henry Thoreau these came by birth. Of all the men of letters that have given Concord a name throughout the world, he is almost the only one who was born there. Emerson was born in Boston, Alcott in Connecticut, Hawthorne in Salem, Channing in Boston, Louisa Alcott in Germantown, and others elsewhere, but Thoreau was native to the soil, and since his genius has been shaped and guided by the personal traits of those among whom he lived, as well as by the hand of God, and by the intuitive impulses of his own spirit, it is proper to see what the men of Concord have really been. It is from them we must judge the character of the town and its civilization, not from those exceptional imported persons, cultivated men and women, who may be regarded as at the head of society, and yet may have no representative quality at all. It is not by the few that a New England town is to be judged, but by the many. Yet there were a few and a many in Concord, between whom certain distinctions could be drawn, in the face of that general equality which the institutions of New England compel. Life in our new country had not yet been reduced to the ranks of modern civilization, so orderly outward, so full of mutiny within. It is mentioned by Tacitus in his life of Agricola that this noble Roman lived as a child in Marseilles, a place, he adds, of Grecian culture and provincial frugality, mingled and well-blended. I have thought this felicitous phrase of Tacitus most apposite for concord as i have known it since eighteen fifty four and as thoreau must have found it from eighteen thirty onward its people lived then and since with little display while learning was held in high regard and the plain living and high thinking which wordsworth declared were gone from england have never been absent from this new england town it has always been a town of much social equality and yet of great social and spiritual contrasts most of its inhabitants have lived in a plain way for the two centuries and a half that it has been inhabited, but at all times some of them have had important connections with the great world of politics, affairs, and literature. Reverend Peter Bulkley, the founder and first minister of the town, was a near kinsman of Oliver St. John, Cromwell's solicitor general of the same noble English family that, a generation or two later, produced Henry St. John, Lord Bolingbroke, the brilliant, unscrupulous friend of Pope and Swift. Another of the Concord ministers, Reverend John Whiting, was descended through his grandmother, Elizabeth St. John, wife of Reverend Samuel Whiting, of Lynn, from this same old English family, which in its long pedigree counted for ancestors the Norman conqueror of England, and some of his turbulent posterity. He was, says the epitaph over him in the village burying ground, a gentleman of singular hospitality and generosity who never detracted from the character of any man and was a universal lover of mankind. 
In this character, some representative gentleman of Concord has stood in every generation since the first settlement of the little town. The Munroes of Lexington and Concord are descended from a Scotch soldier of Charles II's army captured by Cromwell at the Battle of Worcester in 1651 and allowed to go into exile in America. His powerful kinsman, General George Monroe, who commanded for Charles at the Battle of Worcester, was at the Restoration made Commander-in-Chief for Scotland. Robert Cumming, father of Dr. John Cumming, a celebrated Concord physician, was one of the followers of the First Pretender in 1715, and when the Scotch Rebellion of that year failed, Cumming, with some of his friends, fled to New England and settled in Concord and the neighboring town of Stowe. Duncan Ingram, a retired sea captain who had enriched himself in the Suriname trade, long lived in Concord before and after the Revolution, and one of his grandchildren was Captain Marriott, the English novelist. Another was the American naval captain, Ingram, who brought away Martin Costa, a Hungarian refugee from the clutches of the Austrian government. While Duncan Ingram was living in Concord a hundred years ago, a lad from that town, Joseph Perry, who had gone to sea with Paul Jones, became a high naval officer in the service of Catherine of Russia and wrote to Dr. Ripley from the Crimea in 1786 to inquire what had become of his parents in Concord, whom he had not seen or heard from for many years. The stepson of Duncan Ingram, Tilly Merrick of Concord, who graduated at Cambridge in 1773, made the acquaintance of Sir Archibald Campbell when captured in Boston Harbor, that Scotch officer having visited at the house of Mrs. Ingram, Merrick's mother, while a prisoner in Concord jail. A few years later, Merrick was himself captured twice on his way to and from Holland and France, whither he went as secretary or attaché to our commissioner, John Adams. The first time he was taken to London, the second time to Halifax, where, as it happened, Sir Archibald was then in command as governor of Nova Scotia. Young Merrick went presently to the governor's quarters, but was refused admission by the sentinel, while parlaying with whom Sir Archibald heard the conversation and came forward. He at once recognized his Concord friend, greeted him cordially with, How do you do, my little rebel? and after taking good care of him in remembrance of his own experience in Concord, procured Merrick's exchange for one of Burgoyne's officers captured at Saratoga. Returning to America after the war, Tilly Merrick went into an extensive business at Charleston, South Carolina, with the son of Duncan Ingram for a partner, and there became the owner of large plantations worked by slaves, which he afterwards lost through reverses in business. Coming back to Concord in 1798 with the remnants of his South Carolina fortune and inheriting his mother's Concord estate, he married a lady of the Minot family and became a country storekeeper in his native town. His daughter, Mrs. Brooks, was for many years the leader of the anti-slavery party in Concord and a close friend of the Thoreaus, who at one time lived next door to her hospitable house. Soon after, Mr. Emerson fixed his home in Concord in 1834, a new bond of connection between the town and the great world outside this happy valley began to appear. The genius of that man whose like has not been seen in America, nor in the whole world in our century, a large and generous man who on our moors built up his thought, though with an Indian tongue, 
and fittest to have sung at Persian feast, yet dwelt among us as the sage he was. Sage of his days, patient and proudly true, whose word was worth the world, whose heart was pure. Oh, such a heart was his, no gate or bar, the poorest wretch that ever passed his door, welcome as highest king or fairest friend. This genius, in one point of view so solitary, but in another so universal and social, soon made itself felt as an attractive force, and Concord became a place of pilgrimage, as it has remained for so many years since. When Theodore Parker left Divinity Hall at Cambridge in 1836 and began to preach in Unitarian pulpits, he fixed his hopes on Concord as a parish, chiefly because Emerson was living there. It is said that he might have been called as a colleague for Dr. Ripley if it had not been thought his sermons were too learned for the Christians of the Nine Acre Corner and other outlying hamlets of the town. In 1835-36, to 36, Mr. Alcott began to visit Mr. Emerson in Concord, and in 1840 he went there to live. Margaret Fuller and Elizabeth Peabody, coadjutors of Mr. Alcott in his Boston school, had already found their way to Concord, where Margaret at intervals resided, or came and went in her sibilant way. Ellery Channing, one of the nephews of Dr. Channing the Divine, took his bride, a sister of Margaret Fuller, to Concord in 1843, and Hawthorne removed thither upon his marriage with Miss Peabody's sister Sophia in 1842. After noticing what went on about him for a few years in his seclusion at the old manse, Hawthorne thus described the attraction of Concord in 1845. It was necessary to go but a little way beyond my threshold before meeting with stranger moral shapes of men than might have been encountered elsewhere in a circuit of a thousand miles. These hobgoblins of flesh and blood were attracted thither by the wide-spreading influence of a great original thinker who had his earthly abode at the opposite extremity of our village. His mind acted upon other minds of a certain constitution with wonderful magnetism, and drew many men upon long pilgrimages to speak with him face to face. Young visionaries to whom just so much of insight had been imparted as to make life all a labyrinth around them came to seek the clue that should guide them out of their self-involved bewilderment. Gray-headed theorists, whose systems at first air had finally imprisoned them in an iron framework, traveled painfully to his door, not to ask deliverance, but to invite the free spirit into their own thraldom. People that had lighted on a new thought, or a thought that they fancied new, came to Emerson as the finder of a glittering gem hastens to a lapidary to ascertain its quality and value. The picture here painted still continued to be true until long after the death of Thoreau, and the attraction was increased at times by the presence in the village of Hawthorne himself, of Alcott, and of others who made Concord their home or their haunt. Thoreau also was resorted to by pilgrims who came sometimes from long distances and at long intervals to see and talk with him. There was in the village, too, a consular man, for many years the first citizen of Concord, Samuel Hoare, who made himself known abroad by sheer force of character and plain heroic magnitude of mind. It was of him that Emerson said at his death in November 1856, He was a man in whom so rare a spirit of justice 
visibly dwelt that if one had met him in a cabin or in a forest he must still seem a public man answering as sovereign state to sovereign state and might easily suggest milton's picture of john bradshaw that he was a consul from whom the fasces did not depart with the year but in private seemed ever sitting in judgment on kings he returned from courts or congresses to sit down with unaltered humility in the church or in the town-house on the plain wooden bench where honour came and sat down beside him in his house and in a few others along the elm-planted street you might meet at any time other persons of distinction beauty or wit such as now and then glance through the shining halls of cities and in great centres of the world's civilization like london or paris muster in solemn troops and sweet societies which are the ideal of poets and fair women and the envy of all who aspire to social eminence thoreau knew the worth of this luxury too though as a friend said of him a story from a fisher or hunter was better to him than an evening of triviality in shining parlours where he was misunderstood there were not many such parlours in concord but there was and had constantly been in the town a learned and social element such as gathers in an old new england village of some wealth and inherited culture at the head of this circle which fell off on one side into something like fashion and mere amusement on another into the activity of trade or politics and rose among the women especially into art and literature and religion stood in thoreau's boyhood and youth a grave figure yet with something droll about him the parish minister and county nestor dr ezra ripley who lived and died in the old manse dr ripley was born in seventeen fifty one in woodstock connecticut the same town in which dr abiel holmes the father of the poet holmes was born he entered harvard college in seventeen seventy two came with the students to concord in seventeen seventy five when the college buildings at cambridge were occupied by washington and his army besieging boston and graduated in seventeen seventy six among his classmates were governor gore samuel sewell the second chief justice of massachusetts of that name and royal tyler the witty chief justice of vermont governor gore used to say that in college he was called holy ripley from his devout character he settled in concord in seventeen seventy eight and at the age of twenty nine married the widow of his last predecessor rev william emerson and the daughter of his next predecessor rev daniel bliss who was at their marriage ten years older than her husband and had a family of five children dr ripley's own children were three in number the rev samuel ripley born may eleventh seventeen eighty three daniel bliss ripley born august one seventeen eighty four and miss sarah ripley born august eighth seventeen eighty nine when this daughter died not long after her mother in eighteen twenty six breaking says mr emerson the last tie of blood which bound me and my brothers to his house dr ripley said to mr emerson i wish you and your brothers to come to this house as you have always done you will not like to be excluded i shall not like to be neglected he died himself in september eighteen forty one of dr ripley countless anecdotes are told in his parish and he was the best remembered person except thoreau himself who had died in concord till emerson 
just as his house described so finely by hawthorne in his mosses is still the best-known house in concord it was for a time the home of mr emerson and there it is said he wrote his first book nature concerning which when it came out anonymously the question was asked who is the author of nature the reply was of course god and ralph waldo emerson the old manse was built about seventeen sixty six for mr emerson's grandfather then minister of the parish and into it he brought his bride miss phoebe bliss daughter of rev daniel bliss of concord and phoebe walker of connecticut miss mary emerson youngest child of this marriage used to say she was in arms at the battle of concord because her mother held her up then two years old to see the soldiers from her window and from his study window her father saw the fight at the bridge it was the scene of many of the anecdotes told of dr ripley some of which gathered from various sources may here be given it was also after his death one of the resorts of thoreau of margaret fuller of ellery channing of dr hedge and of the transcendentalists in general his parishioners to this day associate dr ripley's form with whatever was grave and droll in the old cold unpainted uncarpeted square pewed meeting-house with its four iron gray deacons in their little box under the pulpit with watts's hymns with long prayers rich with the diction of ages and not less with the report like musketry from the movable seats one of these iron gray deacons francis jarvis used to visit the old manse with his children on sunday evenings and his son dr edward jarvis thus describes another side of dr ripley's pastoral character among the very pleasant things connected with the sabbaths in the jarvis family were the visits to dr ripley in the evening the doctor had usually a small levy of such friends as were disposed to call deacon jarvis was fond of going there and generally took with him one of the children and his wife when she was able there were at these levees many of the most intelligent and agreeable men of the town mr samuel hoare mr nathan brooks mr john keyes deacon brown mr pritchard major burr etc these were extremely pleasant gatherings the little boys sat and listened and remembered the cheerful and instructive conversation there were discussions of religion and morals of politics and philosophy the affairs of the town the news of the day the religious and social gossip pleasant anecdotes and witty tales all were in their best humour deacon garvis adds his son did not go to these levees every sunday night though he would have been glad to do so had he been less distrustful when his children who had no such scruples asked him to go and take them with him he said he feared that dr ripley would not like to see him so frequently according to mr emerson dr ripley was a natural gentleman no dandy but courtly hospitable and public-spirited his house open to all men an old farmer who used to travel thitherward from maine where dr ripley had a brother settled in the ministry used to say that no horse from the eastern country would go by the doctor's gate it was one of the listeners at his sunday evening levees no doubt who said at the time when dr ripley was preparing for his first and last journey to baltimore and washington in the presidency of the younger adams that a man who could tell a story so well was company for kings and for john quincy adams when p m after his release from the state prison had the effrontery to call on dr ripley as an old acquaintance as they were talking together on general matters his young colleague rev mr frost came in 
The doctor presently said, Mr. M., my brother and colleague, Mr. Frost, has come to take tea with me. I regret very much the causes, very well known to you, which make it impossible for me to ask you to stay and break bread with us. Mr. Emerson, his grandson, by Dr. Ripley's marriage with the widow of Reverend William Emerson, relates that he once went to a funeral with Dr. Ripley and heard him address the mourners. As they approached the farmhouse, the old minister said that the eldest son, who was now to succeed the deceased father of a family in his place as a Concord yeoman, was in some danger of becoming intemperate. In his remarks to his son, he presently said, Sir, I condole with you. I knew your great-grandfather when I came to this town in 1778. He was a substantial farmer in this very place, a member of the church and an excellent citizen. Your grandfather followed him and was a virtuous man. Now your father is to be carried to his grave full of labors and virtues. There is none of that old family left but you, and it rests with you to bear up the good name and usefulness of your ancestors. If you fail, Ichabod, the glory is departed. Let us pray. He took Mr. Emerson about with him in his chaise when a boy, and in passing each house he would tell the story of its family, dwelling especially on the nine church members who had made a division in the church in the time of his predecessor, every one of the nine having come to bad fortune or a bad end. The late Dr. Gardiner, says Mr. Emerson, in a funeral sermon on some parishioner whose virtues did not readily come to mind, honestly said, he was good as fires. Dr. Ripley had many virtues, and yet even in his old age, if the fire bell was rung, he was instantly on horseback with his buckets and bag. He had even some willingness, perhaps not equal to the zeal of the Hindu saint, to extinguish the orthodox fires of hell, which had long blazed in New England, so that men might worship God with less fear. But he had small sympathy with the transcendentalists when they began to appear in Concord, when Mr. Emerson took his friend Mr. Alcott to see the old doctor, he gave him warning that his brilliant young kinsman was not quite sound in the faith and bore testimony in particular against a sect of his own naming called Egomites from Ego and Mito, who sent themselves on the Lord's errands without any due call thereto. Dr. Channing viewed the apostles of the newness with more favor and could pardon something to the spirit of liberty which was strong in them. The occasional correspondence between the Concord shepherd of his people and the great Unitarian preacher is full of interest. In February 1839, when he was 88 years old and weighed down with infirmities, he could still lift up his voice in testimony. He then wrote to Dr. Channing, Broken down with the infirmities of age and subject to fits that deprive me of reason and the use of my limbs, I feel it a duty to be patient and submissive to the will of God, who is too wise to err and too good to injure. My mind labors and is oppressed, viewing the present state of Christianity and the various speculations, opinions, and practices of the passing period. Extremes appear to be sought and loved, and their novelty gains attention. You, sir, appear to retain and act upon the sentiment of the Latin phrase est modus in rebus sunt cerci denique fines. The learned and estimable Norton appears to me to have weakened his hold on public opinion and confidence by his petulance or pride, his want of candor and charity. Six years earlier, Dr. Channing had written to Dr. Ripley, almost as if replying to some compliment like this, 
and expressed himself thus in a letter dated january twenty two eighteen thirty three i thank god for the testimony which you have borne to the usefulness of my writings such approbation from one whom i so much venerate and who understands so well the wants and signs of the times is very encouraging to me if i have done anything towards manifesting christianity in its simple majesty and mild glory i rejoice and i am happy to have contributed anything towards the satisfaction of your last years it would gratify many and would do good if in the quiet of your advanced age you would look back on the eventful period through which you have passed and would leave behind you or give now a record of the changes you have witnessed and especially of the progress of liberal inquiry and rational views in religion dr ripley's prayers were precise and undoubting in their appeal for present providences he prayed for rain and against the lightning that it may not lick up our spirits he blessed the lord for exemption from sickness and insanity that we have not been tossed to and fro until the dawning of the day that we have not been a terror to ourselves and to others one memorable occasion in the later years of his pastorate when he had consented to take a young colleague is often remembered in his parish now fifty years after its date the town was suffering from drought and the farmers from barrett's mill bateman's pond and the nine-acre corner had asked the minister to pray for rain mr goodwin the father of professor goodwin of harvard university had omitted to do this in his morning service and at the noon intermission dr ripley was reminded of the emergency by the afflicted farmers he told them courteously that mr goodwin's garden lay on the river and perhaps he had not noticed how parched the uplands were but he entered the pulpit that afternoon with an air of resolution and command mr goodwin as usual offered to relieve the doctor of the duty of leading in prayer but the old shepherd as mr emerson says rejected his offer with some humour and with an air that said to all the congregation this is no time for you young cambridge men the affair sir is getting serious i will pray myself he did so and with unusual fervour demanded rain for the languishing corn and the dry grass of the field as the story goes the afternoon opened fair and hot but before the dwellers in nine acre corner and the north quarter reached their homes a pouring shower rewarded the grey-haired suppliant and reminded concord that the righteous are not forsaken another of mr emerson's anecdotes bears on this point one august afternoon when i was in his hayfield helping him with his man to rake up his hay i well remember his pleading almost reproachful looks at the sky when the thunder-gust was coming up to spoil his hay he raked very fast looked at the cloud and said we are in the lord's hand mind you rake george we are in the lord's hand and seemed to say you know me this field is mine dr ripley's thine own servant in his later years dr ripley was much distressed by a schism in his church which drew off to a trinitarian congregation several of his oldest friends and parishioners among the younger members who thus seceded seventy years ago were the maiden aunts of thoreau jane and maria the last of whom and the last of the name in america has died recently as already mentioned thoreau seceded later but not to the orthodox church as much against the wish of dr ripley however as if he had in later years thoreau's church of the sunday walkers was recognized in the village gossip so that when i first spent sunday in concord and asked my landlord what churches there were he replied the unitarian the orthodox and the walden pond association 
to the latter he professed to belong and said its services consisted in walking on sunday in the walden woods dr ripley would have viewed such rites with horror but they have now become common his old manse which from eighteen forty two to forty six was occupied by hawthorne was for twenty years eighteen forty seven to eighteen sixty seven the home of mrs sarah ripley that sweet and learned lady and has since been the dwelling place of her children the grandchildren of dr ripley near by stands now the statue of the concord minuteman of seventeen seventy five marking the spot to which the middlesex farmers came in sloven dress and broken rank and where they stood when in unconscious heroism they fired the shot heard round the world and drove back the invading visitor from their doorsteps and cornfields dr ripley however seldom repelled a visitor or an invader unless he came from too recent an experience in the state prison or offered to break out his path on a sunday when he had fancied himself too much snowbound to go forth to his pulpit the anecdote is characteristic if not wholly authentic one sunday after a severe snowstorm his neighbor the great farmer on Tosset hill half a mile to the northward of the old manse turned out his ox teams and all his men and neighbors to break a path to the meeting-house and the tavern wallowing through the drifts they had got as far as dr ripley's gate while the good parson snugly blocked in by a drift completely filling his avenue of ash-trees thought of nothing less than of going out to preach that day the long team of oxen with much shouting and stammering from the red-faced farmer was turned out of the road and headed up the avenue when dr ripley coming to his parsonage door and commanding silence began to berate captain b for breaking the sabbath and the roads at one stroke implying if not asserting that he did it to save time and oxen for his monday's work angered at the ingratitude of his minister the stammering farmer turned the ten yoke of cattle round in the doctor's garden and drove on to the village leaving the parson to shovel himself out and get to meeting the best way he could meanwhile the teamsters sat in the warm barroom at the tavern and cheered themselves with punch flip grog and toddy instead of going to hear dr ripley hold forth and when he had returned to his parsonage they paraded their oxen and sleds back again past his gate with much more shouting than at first this led to a long quarrel between minister and parishioner in course of which one day as the doctor halted his chaise in front of the farmer's house on the hill the stammering captain came forward a peck measure in his hand with which he had been giving his oxen their meal and began to renew the unutterable grievance waxing warm as the doctor admonished him afresh he smote with his wooden measure on the shafts of the chaise until his gentle wife rushing forth called on the neighbors to stop the fight which she fancied was going on between the charioteer of the lord and the foot-soldier despite these outbursts and his habitual way of looking at all things from the parochial point of view as emerson said of him he was also a courteous and liberal-minded man as the best anecdotes of him constantly prove he was the sovereign of his people managing the church the schools the society meetings and for a time the lyceum as he thought fit the lecturers as well as the young candidates for schoolkeeping theodore parker edward everett and the rest addressed themselves to him and when he met webster then the great man of massachusetts it was on equal terms daniel webster was never a lyceum lecturer in concord and he did not often try cases there but was sometimes consulted in causes of some pecuniary magnitude when humphrey barrett died whose management of his nephew's estate will be mentioned in the next chapter 
His heir by will, a young man without property, until he should inherit the large estate bequeathed him, found it necessary to employ counsel against the heirs at law who sought to break the will. His attorney went to Mr. Webster in Boston and related the facts, adding that his client could not then pay a large fee, but might if the cause were gained, as Mr. Webster thought it would be. You may give me one hundred dollars as a retainer, said Webster, and tell the young man from me, when I win his case, I shall send him a bill that will make his hair stand on end. It so happened, however, that Webster was sent to the Senate, and the case was won by his partner. In the summer of 1843, while Thoreau was living at Staten Island, Webster visited Concord to try an important case in the county court, which then held sessions there. This was the Wyman trial, long famous in local traditions, Webster and Choate being both engaged in the case, and along with them, Mr. Franklin Dexter and Mr. Rockwood Hoar, the latter a young lawyer who had been practicing in the Middlesex courts for a few years, where his father, Mr. Samuel Hoare, was the leader of the bar. Judge Allen, Charles Allen of Worcester, held the court, and the eminent array of counsel just named was for the defense. The occasion was a brilliant one and made a great and lasting sensation in the village. Mr. Webster and his friends were entertained at the houses of the chief men of Concord, and the villagers crowded the courthouse to hear the arguments and the colloquies between the counsel and the court. Webster was suffering from his usual summer annoyance, the hay catarrh or rose cold, which he humorously described afterward in a letter to a friend in Concord. You know enough of my miserable catarrh. Its history since I left your hospitable roof is not worth noting. There would be nothing found in it, either of the sublime or the beautiful, nothing fit for elegant description or a touch of sentiment. Not that it has not been a great thing in its way, for I think the sneezing it has occasioned has been truly transcendental. A fellow sufferer from the same affliction who lived in Cohasset was asked the other day what in the world he took for it. His reply was that he took eight handkerchiefs a day, and this, I believe, is the approved mode of treatment, though the doses here mentioned are too few for severe cases. Suffice it to say, my dear lady, that either from a change of air or the progress of the season, or what is more probable from the natural progress of the disease itself, I am much better than when I left Concord, and I propose to return to Boston today, feeling or hoping that I may now be struck off the list of invalids. Notwithstanding this affliction, Mr. Webster made himself agreeable to the ladies of Concord, old and young, and even the little girls like Louisa Alcott went to the courthouse to see and hear him. He was present at a large tea party given by Mrs. R. W. Emerson in his honor, and he renewed his old acquaintance with the Dunbars and Thoreaus. Mr. Emerson, writing to Thoreau September 8, 1843, said briefly, You will have heard of our Wyman trial and the stir it made in the village. But the Cliff and Walden, which know something of the railroad, knew nothing of that. Not a leaf nodded, not a pebble fell. Why should I speak of it to you? Thoreau was indeed interested in it and in the striking personality of Webster. To his mother he wrote from Staten Island, August 29, 1843. I should have liked to see Daniel Webster walking about Concord. I suppose the town shook every step he took but I trust there were some sturdy Concordians who were not tumbled down by the jar, but represented still the upright town. Where was George Minot? He would not have gone far to see him. Uncle Charles should have been there. He might as well have been catching catnaps in Concord as anywhere. And then what a wetter up of his memory this event would have been. You'd have had all the classmates again in alphabetical order reversed, and Seth Hunt and Bob Smith, and he was a student of my father's, 
and where's put now and i wonder you if henry's been to see george jones yet a little account with stowe balcom bigelow poor miserable t o a d sound asleep i vow you what noise was that saving grace and few there be that's clear as preaching easter brooks morally depraved how charming is divine philosophy some wise and some otherwise heigh-ho sound asleep again webster's a smart fellow bears his age well how old should you think he was you does he look as if he were two years younger than i this uncle was charles dunbar of course who was in fact two years older than webster and like him a new hampshire man he and his sisters the mother and the aunt of henry thoreau had known webster in his youth when he was a poor young lawyer in new hampshire and the acquaintance was kept up from time to time as the years brought them together whenever webster passed a day in concord as he did nearly every year from eighteen forty three to eighteen fifty he would either call on miss dunbar or she would meet him at tea in the house of mr cheney a college classmate of mr emerson whom he usually visited and whose garden was a lovely plot ornamented with great elm trees on the bank of the musketaquid mrs thoreau was often included in these friendly visits and it was of this family as well as of the emersons hoars and brookses no doubt that webster was thinking when he sadly wrote to mrs cheney his last letter less than a year before his death in eighteen fifty two in this note dated at washington november one eighteen fifty one when he was secretary of state under fillmore mr webster said i have very much wished to see you all and in the early part of october seriously contemplated going to concord for a day but i was hindered by circumstances and partly deterred also by changes which have taken place my valued friend mr finney of lexington is not living and many of those whom i so highly esteemed in your beautiful and quiet village have become a good deal estranged to my great grief by abolitionism free soilism transcendentalism and other notions which i cannot but regard as so many vagaries of the imagination these former warm friends would have no pleasure of course in intercourse with one of old-fashioned opinions nevertheless dear mrs cheney if i live to see another summer i will make a visit to your house and talk about former times and former things he never came for in june eighteen fifty two the whig convention at baltimore rejected his name as a presidential candidate and he went home to marshfield to die the tone of sadness in this note was due in part perhaps to the eloquent denunciation of webster by mr emerson in a speech at cambridge in eighteen fifty one and to the unequivocal aversion with which webster's contemporary the first citizen of concord samuel hoare spoke of his seventh of march speech and the whole policy with which webster had identified himself in those dreary last years of his life mr hoare had been sent by his state in eighteen forty six to protest in south carolina against the unconstitutional imprisonment at charleston of colored seamen from massachusetts and he had been driven by force from the state to which he went as an envoy but although webster knew the gross indignity of the act and introduced into his written speech in march eighteen fifty a denunciation of it he did not speak this out in the senate nor did it appear in all the authorized editions of the speech he could hardly expect mr hoare to welcome him in concord after he had uttered his willingness to return fugitive slaves but forgot to claim reparation for so shameful an affront to massachusetts as the concord cato had endured mr webster was attached to concord as most persons are who have ever spent pleasant days there and used to compliment his friend on his house and garden by the riverside looking out upon his great trees from the dining-room window he once said i am in the terrestrial paradise and i will prove it to you by this america is the finest continent on the globe the united states the finest country in america 
massachusetts the best state in the union concord the best town in massachusetts and my friend cheney's field the best acre in concord this was an opinion so like that often expressed by henry thoreau that one is struck by it indeed the devotion of thoreau to his native town was so marked as to provoke opposition henry talks about nature said madame hoare the mother of senator hoare and daughter of roger sherman of connecticut just as if she'd been born and brought up in concord End of chapter 3